Amen. We're going to be in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. If you want to turn there with me, Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. We've been going through the book of Romans, and I was joking with Brother Ronjur about last week's passage, which reads, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. That's the sunshine. Today's passage is the rain, all right? Paul is going to give us the bad news before he gives us the good news, but we need to hear it for our faith is founded upon it. So we'll begin in verse 18 after I pray. During the week, I love to pray for you guys. And uh, this week I was using a little prayer book called Piercing Hearts. And I'm just going to pray a prayer that I have already prayed for you again as we begin. So let's pray together. Father, by your Spirit, Take us now in your direction for your children. Remind us of the stunning beauty of Jesus. For those who do not know you yet, Lord, grab onto them now and do your work. Take them by the heart. Overcome them and persuade them until they say, you have won. You are stronger than I. Now, Lord, allow me to cast my net as a fisher of men. Just one more time. Lord Jesus, stand on the shore and point out to me exactly where to cast. Enclose the souls that you seek such that they have no way out of your net. Remember us, Lord, and strengthen us. Amen. Amen. This week I went gym mining with my first grader, And my fourth grader, I don't mean virtual Clash of Clans gym mining. I mean the tourist trap type of places where you go and they give you screens to actually put some dirt on the screen and you take it in the water. You've seen this and you sift it, right? So we had a great time with it with my kids. And when you do that, three types of things will come out of this bag of dirt. First, sand, which when you sift it in the water, the sand will just flow on down the water, and that's nice. Secondly, what you're looking for is these bigger gems like quartz or topaz. Well, they won't pass through the filter, and they'll still be in your sifter, and that's what you find as well. But the third category of what's in this bag are these stones that are bigger than sand, but they're too big to go through the filter, right? So you have these nice big gems but you also have a sifter full of other little stones. And every once in a while, I would find a stone. I would say, oh, what's this? And I would compare it to our little chart, and it was nothing. It was a fool's go of sorts, satisfying me for just a fleeting moment, but it was not the real gemstone. And I had this thought that that's kind of the message that Paul is trying to get into our minds and souls here in chapter 1 beginning in verse 18 because when it comes to us and God 
we tend to be captivated by cheap substitutes. Substitutes for God's glory. Fool's gold that will never satisfy. In the Bible, you might remember in Exodus 32, when the children of Israel got impatient with this conversation that was happening between Moses and God. And so what did they do in their impatience? They built a golden calf and they worshipped it. Worshipped it. Literally, fool's gold, they were worshipping there together. And of course, we know that such idolatry is not just about little images. It can also happen with what we might call idols of the heart. I read this week an author, his name is Sammy Rhodes. He's also a college pastor. And he wrote about his own idol of approval. Here's what he says. It's the craving of approval that turns dark inside of me. It's the pursuit of praise that comes from men instead of the kind that comes from God. For many, the struggle is real. We're slaves to what others think of us. That's why my mouth does that thing when I go to say no, where it just says yes instead. I'm terrified to disappoint this person in front of me whose approval I crave. Jesus is my Savior, yes and amen, but too often I live as if approval were my Lord. What's a chronic people pleaser to do? Maybe you feel that way sometimes. If so, this text is for you. As we continue to go through the book of Romans together, this is going to meet us in the, this very spot of idolatry. We're given a behind-the-curtains look at the mechanisms of our very own hearts. And we're going to see how easily the human heart is wooed away from God, our Creator, by far lesser things. We'll also see the holy ferocity of the wrath and anger of God, but thankfully and miraculously, He doesn't leave us here. All right, there's a rescue story of Jesus that runs throughout the book of Romans. We'll get a glimpse of that as well. So let's jump in here together. The section of Romans, the sermon I'm just going to call Your Fatal Fascination with Fools Gold. Your Fatal Fascination with Fools Gold. I'm going to start by reading the text. I'll read beginning in verse 18 all the way down through verse 23, and then we'll go and chop it up together. Let me read. <clears throat> Verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse for although they knew God they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened claiming to be wise they became fools and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Now, 
Let's zero in here on a few verses at a time. Paul is going to show us now how God graciously gives us a glimpse of the most valuable treasure in the universe, which is himself. All people, even unbelievers, have seen at least a portion of God's loveliness. Why do I say that? Look at verse 19. In verse 19 we read, For what can be known about God is plain to them. He didn't say all that could be known about God, but what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Who's the them? Well, it's all people, particularly unbelievers, but everybody, you before you became a believer. There's three things I want you to understand from this verse. First, note how God in the revelation process is the initiative taker. He is the one showing off to people, right? Second, when we interact with people, we need to keep in mind God has already shown a portion of himself to unbelievers. What does that mean? There's no such thing as a person who's never seen a part of God. Paul is very clear about that. But thirdly, most unbelievers won't admit this. All right? They're going to tell you, well, I just need to see some proof about God, or ah, I've just never been into that God thing. So there's an inconsistency there that we have to understand as we are interacting with folks. Theologian John Frame hits on this really well when he writes these words. Though God is clearly revealed to all, fallen people prefer to deny that they know him, just as Adam hid from God in the garden. Remember that? The same instinct. When people say they do not know God, it's not because God has failed to reveal himself or that God's revelation is not clear enough. Rather, their ignorance of God is something they have done to themselves. They are lying to themselves, trying to convince themselves that God does not exist or that he is obscure, while all the time God is staring right at him. We'll get to more on this later because Paul will get to more on this later. Next in the text, Paul is going to answer the question, how much of his glory has God revealed to all humans? What is this revelation about? Look in verse 20. For God's invisible attributes, namely, that means not all of his attributes, but what I'm about to name, two things, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly perceived, not just by believers, but by unbelievers. Ever since the creation of the world, it's always been this way. How has it been revealed? In the things that have been made by the Creator. So think about what this means. Everyone, that's Muslims praying from Mecca and towards Mecca, the Zen monk who's meditating, the traditional Cherokee, where they would throw things to feed a holy fire as their worship. Paul says that everyone has gotten a glimpse of the one true 
living God. And they do it through creation. They can see God's existence and his power. The fact that God exists and his might. And really, you can look no further than the state of North Carolina to see this. When you hear the waves crashing at the outer banks, you can get a picture of God's might. Go pick some strawberries locally this season, and you can get a taste that God exists. You might hike like we did recently through the Uwari Forest with a ministry group here at TCC. God will show you his creative beauty. You can even drive east on your way to work in the morning and you squint and get some of the radiance of God right there in your eyes. Drive slowly on the Blue Ridge Parkway. What do you see? You can know that God exists just by looking out there and If you happen to be here today from Cleveland County, I'm not going to overlook you because Cleveland County, and only Cleveland County, has the pinnacle of God's creative power. They have a 10-foot, hairy, six-fingered Bigfoot (laughs) called Nobby. Paul Sarazen will tell you all about Nobby. Even Nobby shows off God's glory. All of creation shows off the glory of God. And I want to challenge us with this idea today. This isn't just a philosophical thing that Paul is doing. Oh, yeah, that's right. I guess everybody... He's trying to challenge you in your life. Remember this, that God has revealed a part of himself to every person you will ever meet. All the people you'll talk to this week, how will that affect your interaction with them, knowing that God has already revealed a part of himself, his existence and his power to every person you're going to speak to. One teacher said it like this, creation reveals the back of God, but in Jesus we see his face, right? I imagine one reason there's so many world religions is that God has been perceived but not really known. Therefore, all these religions will just pop right up. That's what Paul encountered. If you remember in Acts 17, he goes to the city of Athens, and they've made false gods everywhere, and there's one statue that says, to the God that we know is out there, but we don't really know much about it. That's what Paul is encountering there, and he uses that for evangelism. It's as if unbelievers have a fill-in-the-blank quiz in front of them, And we have the answer to all of the blanks to write in as we interact and we talk to them. So this week, let's help people finish the story. They've got the beginning. They've got the fact that God exists. It's in there somewhere in their consciousness. Let's finish the story with the beauty of Jesus. For you, it might be the family that lives in a neighborhood. We were talking in community group this week, and somebody said, I think for me, it's when I'm at the grocery store, because I always find people who can be chatty when I'm at the store. If that's you, maybe it's for you, it's the kids, at your, at the, it's the parents of the kids at your t-ball group or some kids' activity. There are people who know a portion of God's loveliness. All we have to do is fill in the story. That's how we can use this COVID re-entry time in sharing 
the glory of God. Now, back to the explanation of the mechanisms of our hearts before God. First, Paul tells us we've all been given a glimpse of God, our treasure. Truly precious metal, no fool's gold here. Now, he's going to speak of how this beauty is unappreciated. Look with me back in the text as we follow the flow of thought here. Verse 19 and 20, we saw that through creation, God revealed himself to everyone as the powerful God. Now, notice the end of verse 20 here. So, they are without excuse. Right? The idea is they've seen the beauty of God, but they fail to appreciate Him. And that's just not going to play. You see someone's beauty, you ought to appreciate it. This week at my house, one of my sons had a friend from the neighborhood over. He comes over a lot and we hang out. We were eating supper and I knew that this guy's father is a really good cook. And so uh, I had put something on the table from the grill and I said, your dad grill ever? I bet he grills a lot. And he said, yeah, but mostly, mostly burgers. And I said, okay, they're good burgers. He said, yeah, yeah, they're good burgers. Then he got a real, really odd look on his face, and he said, but sometimes he grills steaks. And I'm like, okay. And he said, but I don't get the steaks. The steaks, he just grills for him and mom. <laughs> we kids, we get the burgers. And I said, oh, man, tell me about that. And he says, well, dad gets for his steaks what's called A5 Wagyu steaks. I'm not saying it right, but you know the famous Japanese beef called butter beef because it's so tender. The only livestock that will produce within the fabric of the muscle fatty tissue intertwined, so it's so tender. So he told me, he said, every once in a while, after he's eaten the whole steak, he'll carve off a little piece for me, and he'll, he'll throw me a bone. <laughs> and then his face, his face is like, ah, and it's so wonderful to have just a piece of that steak. And I thought, well, he's ruined for hot dogs for good. <laughs> but that ought to be our reaction when we see something spectacular, beef that is $20 an ounce, ought to get a different reaction than a hot dog for you. But not so with God. Paul is saying here, that is not the reaction of people when they first taste God. Look at the first part of verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. If you are a note taker or a Bible margin writer, you should underline this because the rest of his argument here for the next several verses is going to hinge on this one truth. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Later in the chapter, Paul will lift off specific sins, uh, perverse sexuality, evil violence, deceitfulness and the like, but make no mistake about it. Underlying all of these actions is the failure to glorify God and give Him thanks. The very essence of sin is not the actions, although 
They are sinful. Underlying it is a failure to appreciate the beauty of our magnificent gem, the glory of God Himself. And it's that lack of appreciation that is going to provoke the anger of God. That's why I didn't start reading in verse 18 first, but we can skip back up to it now. But it's good to understand what's provoking God. If you read 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And here it is. Who by their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. What is the truth that's being suppressed? That God is 10 billion times more worthy of your worship than anything else your heart will chase after. That's the truth that unbelievers are suppressing. Men suppress the truth by failing to acknowledge God's work. This Wednesday night, I stayed up too late because there was an NBA playoff game going on, all right? And it was LeBron's team versus Steph's team, and I just really wanted to watch it. And it was a great game. It came down to the last shot. LeBron's team won, but Steph stole the show. This dude displayed basketball skills that are out of this world. And I was watching it with my kids, and we were just like, man, that's great. Whoa, what do you do? And I thought in my mind, and you may have this in your life too, I, I do know some dudes, went to school with some of them, who will sit back and watch a performance like that, and they will say, yeah, I could, I could do that. If I, if I had the brakes, man, if I just had some brakes, I'd be out there. I, I got that. And, and I'm thinking, no, no, you wouldn't. There's a reason Steph Curry makes $43 million to play in the NBA, and you make $0.0 million to play in the driveway. <laughs> there is, he deserves to be appreciated. And the situation that Paul is describing here with our God, it's almost like maybe you've done this. Have you ever come home from the store and you've got a two-liter soda, Dr. Pepper's the worst, and the bag breaks and boom, it rolls, right? Well, the next person it opens, what happens? Right? And my reaction is, is never to just screw it tighter. My reaction is like a hand grenade, like, whoa, you know, trying to keep, the Dr. Pepper from spewing everywhere. That's the picture that Paul is giving us about what our hearts do. The glory of God is showing out, but men's hearts try to suppress it. And for that reason, the wrath of God is coming. The Bible says this provokes anger. You reject his worth, you receive his wrath. Reject his worth, receive his wrath. Well, what specifically is meant by the phrase in verse 18, wrath of God? There's actually two senses that he's speaking here to this phrase. might surprise you. A writer, Thomas Schreiner, explains it like this. First, first sense, wrath of God. God's wrath is poured out throughout history in temporal judgments. Something like the moral desolation of societies, okay? As this chapter goes on, for instance, if you look down in verse 24, in verse 26, verse 28, you're going to see the phrase, 
God gave them up to. God gave them up to. Here's the idea. God leaves people to reap the natural consequences of their own rebellion, and the results are disastrous. Broken relationships, emotional devastation, financial ruin, societal downfall. You want to deny God's beauty and wisdom? This is where it will always lead. It's like when I was a teenager, I remember to go into the beach like it was yesterday with my mother. My mother said the same thing she always says to me. Put sunscreen on. You're at the beach. And I said back to mom, it's a cloudy day. Don't need sunscreen. Got the base tan. It's a cloudy day. Don't need. And of course, I now remember the ride home when I looked down at the tops of my feet and they looked back up at me like that angry emoji on your phone, right? They were red and fiery and burning. I didn't learn my lesson. There was a sense of now to judgment when you turn away from God. Just like I was sunburnt, Paul is saying, there's a part of the wrath of God that hits now. And we see it if we look around every day whether it's trouble in the Gaza trip or something more personal, man, it is everywhere. God withholds a bit of His restraining grace and you see life after life ruined due to rebellion against Him. You can see entire cultures impacted the results of turning away from God and suppressing the truth. But there's a second sense of God's wrath here. Because each of these temporal judgments anticipate a future end-time judgment, right? The wrath of God that you might experience in society now, they anticipate a final end-time judgment. Sometimes we call this the day of wrath. Chapter 2, verse 5, if you want to flip forward in your phone. Chapter 2, verse 5. Paul makes it clear. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're actually storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So on this day in the future, God will send all who suppress the truth of his beauty through judgment to an eternal hell. That will be the final wrath of God. It's very interesting when you think about it. I read one writer this week, Leslie Smucker. She said this, Contrary to popular belief, hell is not a place where God sends those who have been especially bad. Right? That's what people in our culture might think. If you're especially bad... God might send you to hell. For those who might even believe in hell at all, they would say that. But she says, actually, it's our default destination. What does she mean by that? Why would she say that? Because our hearts default to denying God's beauty and His worth. And in response, God dishes out nothing short of eternal conscious 
torment. Utter separation from God's love and His people. It's the opposite of what we were singing about a minute ago. We're looking forward to seeing God's faith with His people. God's end-time wrath is the opposite. Utter separation from His love, His people, active, unending judgment. This is the wrath of God. You reject His worth, you receive His wrath. So in the text, first, we've seen that we've all been given a glimpse of God as our treasure. Then we see that this is a beauty that's unappreciated. And now, we're going to see that our hearts must satisfy themselves in something. Your heart must satisfy itself in something. I told you earlier that I took my kids on a gem mining adventure. And when I was there, they had a mini assay station. When you assay a precious gem, you're analyzing it to determine its quality. All right, You compare it and you contrast it and you come up with a measure of its worth. So in our text here in chapter 1, we find out that when it comes to God, our hearts will actually do a futile, foolish assay of His worth. Look at the last part of verse 21. They become futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Look at 22. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. It's like this in your heart. Back to the mining example, in sifting through looking for a precious gem and the, the dirty, grimy sand is sprinkling out, you all of a sudden say, Aha! I want the sand! Forget the gold! I'm leaving here with the sand! Something in your heart fails to acknowledge the beauty of God He is revealing, and instead you take something of throwaway value and it begins to rule you. Authors Tony Rinke and Greg Beal comment here, especially on the word images. Here's what they write. I thought it was helpful. Paul begins with the objects and effects of pagan worship. So he's looking out to the Gentiles, and he's pulling things out of their pagan worship. He'll get to the Jews later. The pagan worship of an image is actually an act of God replacement. Idols are twisted versions of reality. Whenever we worship a created object or person or animal, we are acting unnaturally towards the Creator. And through this unnatural worship of a created thing, the life of a worshiper takes on an increasingly unnatural characteristics as well. And that unnatural character is reflected in the unnatural sexual sins that Paul is going to later describe. We'll get to that next week. Our worship and our affections right now are pointers to a future trajectory. I love this line here. Our worship is either aimed at our ruin or aimed at our restoration. But it is aimed in either case. All right, we got to erase the idea that our hearts are ever neutral. That ain't happening either aiming at ruin 
or aiming at restoration. The barrel of your heart's affections is always pointing somewhere. Now, Paul will go on in the following verses to describe in gory detail the history of pagans who replaced God with cheap substitutes, but he's doing this history lesson so that you will check your own heart. Don't forget that. It's written for you. He wants you as a believer to check your heart. What idols have you erected that captivate your affection? Is it power? Even within your own home, you can have the idol of power. Is it the approval of others? Comfort at all costs. Do you live your day planning out above everything how you can be most comfortable? Maybe it's control of every situation. It can be a big idol. And you can sometimes see this in how you interact with your peers, whether you're professional, stay-at-home mom. One author puts it this way. When you interact with other people, there will always be someone better than you, all right? More talented, more skilled, more seasoned. And when you encounter such a person, be quick to identify the part of you that feels threatened and identify it for what it really is. That's idolatry. It's that part of you who wants to be the best, even a, a god, right? We need to crucify that and be content. It's like a car in need of alignment. If you've ever driven that, I've driven plenty of used cars, and you know it's always going to drift over here, and you're all the time you're kind of you kind of lean to make sure that the car doesn't veer off. That's the way our hearts are. They're prone to be out of alignment. We must constantly be realigning as we drive back to centering on. God's beauty before us. So in review, first, in this text, we can see that we've all been given a glimpse of God's glory as a treasure. Then we see that that beauty is unappreciated in our hearts. Then we see that our hearts have to aim at something. We're always making that assay. Finally, I want you to see more clearly the dazzling gem that is Jesus Christ. The challenge with working through a book like Romans, little by little, the cool thing is you get into the details. The challenge is, in verses like this, we're given the question and the problem, but not the answer. Right? The answer is seeing the beauty of Jesus Christ. Only He can live up to your expectations. Only He lived a perfect life, battled to the cross, gave himself up as a sacrifice for your sins and everybody else who believed. And only he rose again and went to the Father. Only Jesus can be the answer to these problems of unappreciated glory. Jesus can come in and display himself as utterly worthy. So that you might miss God as he's displaying his power and his existence through the ocean but you cannot miss God as you hear the beautiful gospel and you speak it to yourself. Jesus is worthy. He can satisfy you. One author said this week that I read, 
He said, in Romans verses 18 through 23, we hear of God's power and deity, but nothing is said of mercy. Nothing is said of love. To see that, we must think backwards. So I'm going to give you three practical tips of how do we remember Jesus if our hearts truly are captivated by all these little things in the world? How can we be remembering Jesus so that we can be realigning the car as we drive it throughout our week? First, let's look to the past, all right? Let's look to the past. Paraphrasing a paragraph I read this week from a biblical counselor, Ed Welch, and he said this about texts like this. Seeing your idolatry isn't at the heart of your biblical hope. Jesus is at the heart. Transformation is not a process of lying in wait for your own idols. It is the application of the good news to everyday life, especially, especially in stubborn trials and suffering. Those two areas, your stubborn trial you're suffering, you have to be about applying the good news. As such, the death and resurrection, see how he's looking backwards to the death and resurrection of Jesus, that's the one thing that's always in view. Even in the midst of your present suffering, you can have the death and resurrection of Jesus always in view because it animates the death and resurrection of Jesus. That animates all encouragement and wisdom and illumination and trust and love and hope. So the trick is not so much constant idol hunting. Rather, it's viewing every situation through a gospel lens. Ah, I remember, Jesus died for me. He bought this victory. He proved that he's for me. He justified me. I've been adopted. Looking back, I remember those things. Paul gets that later on in Romans 3. Look at Romans 3.23. It's a famous verse. But understand what he's doing there. When we read verse 23, Paul says, he starts with the sin part, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So Paul is able to look back at the work of Jesus and apply it forward to his present circumstance so that he is not hopeless. He's hopeful because of all that Jesus has accomplished for him. Life forever, Jesus accomplished that. God's approval, Jesus did that for you already. Defeat of death, yes, check. Resurrection of Jesus. I can gain hope in the moment this week by looking back at what Jesus... And when I do that, that's when I see God as mercy. God as love. I'm not going to see it in verses 18 through 23. But as I look back at the cross, I will see Jesus as mercy, Jesus as love, and I will begin to be satisfied. It's so beautiful that our hearts will no longer be satisfied with fool's gold but we'll esteem Jesus as our dazzling gem. We'll have a moment in just a little while in the Lord's Supper when we can do that. We will look back and try to tangibly, in a tactile way, remember the sacrifice of Jesus for us. You can look at the past, but you can also look at the present 
to see the beauty of Jesus. I think here's how we can do it. I think the old hymn writers, if you ever listen or read old hymns, I think they were really helpful at laying out the sinfulness of people, but they did it within the backdrop of Christ's present relief for us. Let me show you what I mean. They never left us there in the sinny spot, right? In the shadows with the bad news. They brought it to the present. Here's one. Uh, John Newton wrote a hymn called Approach My Soul, The Mercy Seat. Here's the lyrics. He says, Bow down beneath a load of sin by Satan sorely pressed, by war without and fears within, I come to thee for rest. See the movement there? He knows his own sinful heart. He knows Satan's attack. But he still has the wherewithal in the present to step into the rest of Jesus Christ. Another song by Isaac Watts, 1707. It's called How Sad Our State by Nature Is. Watts would write this. How sad our state by nature is. That's Romans 1, 18 and following. <laughs> our sin, how deep it stains. Yep, that's me. And Satan binds our captive mind. Just got worse. Fast in his slavish change. A guilty, weak, and helpless worm. You had to be born back in the 1700s to refer to us all as worms. I can't do that. That's why I'm quoting. Oh, he knows his sin, but look where he goes. On thy kind arms I fall. Be thou my strength and righteousness, my Jesus and my all. We have to be making that movement daily. Yes, I know my heart is wretched. But Jesus is here for me. I can rest in him. That's how we remain hopeful. We have to remember, even in texts like this, the present kindness of Jesus to receive us as his children. Jonathan Edwards said it this way, Jesus is right now ready to pity those that are in suffering and sorrowful circumstances as one that delights in the happiness of his creatures. The love and grace that Christ has manifested, get this, does as much exceed all that which is in the world as the sun is brighter than the candle. Get that? Jesus is the sun. All the bad stuff is the candle. He's brighter than that. Parents are often full of kindness towards their children. But there is no kindness like Jesus Christ. There's an exercise, a good gospel exercise. As we leave here today, look around. Because what you will see, parents holding hands with their little ones, wiping off some messy faces, waking them up from the nap in the lap from the sermon, outside pushing them on the swings. Love abounds. Mama love is deep. Daddy love almost is deep. <laughs> but as you see it, even as we walk out, keep in mind, it doesn't even come close to the love Jesus has for you right now. It's amazing. We must keep the love of Christ in view in front of us. If you follow Jesus for years, run to him today. If you've never followed him ever, 
come to Jesus today and you can experience his love and forgiveness through the justification that he has for us on the cross. Claim him as your treasure and the end time wrath of God will not fall upon you. Finally, one way in the midst of your own sin to remain hopeful is to look to the future. Now earlier in verse 23, we looked at this word images. And as the writer Greg Bill pointed out, the only other place in Romans that I see this word image is way ahead in chapter 8, verse 29. Remember chapter 8, 29? This is what God says, but images comes up in a different context. In our text, images were these carved things that we worship. But in 829, we read, For those whom God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to what? The image of His Son. Bill says this, We're being molded into one of two images, either into the distortion of creation, idols, or into the image of our Creator. Man, that's a comforting thought. That means that all of the mess that you had this week, God is working at like clay to form you into the image of Jesus. You won't be Jesus, but you'll be in the image of Jesus. That's what I want. Look to the future. Know where this story is going as you have suffering and trials in your life. That relationship that is supposed to be the most intimate and now it feels broken and shattered, through that, God is molding you into the image of Jesus. You found out yet another physical limitation on your body as you're growing old? Like a skilled potter with the clay, God will work you until you resemble a Messiah, Jesus. Maybe this week your past reared its ugly head like a dragon. It's going to swallow you alive. Your destiny is not your past. Your destiny is the image of Jesus Christ. We have to look to the future to remain hopeful in the midst of all of this sin talk, the reality that our hearts are prone to wonder. One wonderful thing about gathering together again as we get to do the Lord's Supper again and as we do this in unity, we can look back at the sacrifice of Jesus. We can look presently through how we can come to him by the Spirit and we look future to his coming again. That's where we're going to head now. As we do this, we're going to renounce our fatal fascination with fool's goat and we're going to claim Jesus as our treasure. And as we approach the supper here, I want to again pray a portion of another prayer that I prayed for you this week. I think it sets up the supper pretty good. Let's try our best, try our best to hone in here. And then we'll go to the supper together. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, you sure don't mince any words in this text. It's startling, actually, but you never get in our face except to drive us into more of the riches of your grace 
Such is the beauty of the relationship you've established with us in Jesus. There's no condemnation left for us in Christ, but there's plenty of convicting work to be done by your Holy Spirit. And Father, it's quite possible for us to thoroughly enjoy a service of worship, the prayers, the music, the Lord's Supper, and yet the same service might actually grieve you. Conversely, there are probably services where we exit bored and critical and uninspired, and yet in these services you might find great delight and pleasure because of the gospel being preached, our hearts being changed. So, God, forgive us. Forgive us when we make our experience the measure of acceptability of your worship. How arrogant of us. It's not a scorecard that we should bring into the Lord's Supper, but a broken and contrite heart in need of your grace, hungry for your glory. God, forgive us when the new song of the gospel doesn't lead us to a life of caring for others. God, forgive us when the satisfaction of being in your presence does not lead us to the sacrifice of serving in this community. God, forgive us when we can be just as disconnected and merciless as the priest or Levite in the parable of the Good Samaritan. People who enjoyed your real presence and then proceeded to ignore real need. Lord Jesus, you are the quintessential good Samaritan who constantly comes to us with new mercies and endless grace. When you first revealed the gospel to me, I wasn't beaten alongside the road. I was running to you as fast as I could. And you turned me running away from you, running towards you, oh God. We know you, God, and worship you as God only because you first cared for us. You served us. You loved us by giving your life for us. We praise you for making we rebels, we fools, we idolaters, your beloved children and worshipers of God. Continue to make us now through this supper, humble, grateful, joyful worship servants. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.